Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ages for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being, and community. The Ages for Human is sponsored by the legacy project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination, ANC. My name is Pedro Icochea and I will be your host today. In this episode of H equals H, the H is for human. We have a very special guest, a longtime HIV prevention advocate, Jim Picker. Hello, Jim. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you in this new episode of H equals H, the H is for human. Hi, Pedro. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. How long has it been since we met each other for the first time? I don't know. I think it was around IPREX. It was when you were working with IPREX. So it's more than, well, IPREX is 10 years, right? I mean, the, the approval is 10 years, so IPREX yeah. is longer. So probably 15 years, maybe? Yeah. It's, I have no it's, idea. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, and a lot of things happened uh, throughout all these years. To start this conversation, maybe we can start by telling our audience, who is Jim Pickett? So I've been working in um, prevention advocacy for a couple decades now, and I really got started kind of by accident. I had no intention to be a research advocate or work in public health, to be honest. Back in the day when we had printed magazines still, I worked for a zine in Chicago, a local gay zine that came out every week, was kind of sassy and covered the uh, kind of what was happening in the on the scene, covered the nightclub scene, art and interviews and stuff like that. And so I was working for that magazine. I edited it and I sold ads for it, took pictures in the clubs for it, kind of did everything. And that's kind of where I thought I was going. I was going to see if that could turn into some kind of career. I worked there for like six, seven years. But a couple of years into to working for the magazine, I tested positive for HIV in 95. And then a couple of years later, it just dawned on me. I thought, if I'm going to be a real writer, I have to write about something that's hard, like something that's personal and hard. So I have to write about my HIV experience. So I started writing a column called Sick, a body of work in progress. And all of a sudden, people were seeing me as an advocate and asking me to come and speak at things or check things out. And I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. I, but I, if someone asked me to come to a meeting or show up for something, I did. And it led me into like my passion, like it led me to my career passion. And it led me to focusing on prevention advocacy. It, it is interesting. You decided to start working and advocating on HIV prevention and, and not other aspects of HIV, like HIV cure, HIV treatment, and all of that. When I learned that there was research into new ways to prevent HIV, I was like sold. I was excited. And that led me into really the career that I've had since then. But it was kind of like I fell into it. I didn't seek this out, but it happened. What are the different uh, technologies in HIV prevention that we have available now? And how did you learn about all of those throughout your time as an advocate? 
When I started in this work, all of this stuff was a dream, right? None of it was real. A pill to prevent HIV, like people would look at you like you're crazy. When I tested positive, we didn't have highly active antiretroviral therapy yet. And then when we did, it was tons and tons of pills we were swallowing. And the idea that you could take a pill to prevent HIV wasn't even, it wasn't on the general world's radar. I know there were researchers who were starting to work on these ideas, but it certainly wasn't known well. And the idea of microbicides, something that you would put topically into your vagina or rectum that could prevent HIV. People thought it was interesting, but kind of ridiculous. Like I remember a lot of people were like, why do you spend so much time on this? Like, it's not going to happen. And why? There's all these huge needs. People need housing. People need care. People need to know their status. And I was like, I agree. Those are all really important. But we also have to have ways that people can prevent HIV and not force them into one size fits all. And now I look at, and we've come a long way, right? So we talked about Iprex a second ago. We have a pill that prevents HIV. We now have a couple different pills that prevent HIV. We have a long-acting injectable that prevents HIV, so a shot that can uh, cover you for two months at a time. We have a depivirine ring that can be inserted into vaginas and provide protection for a month at a time. And there's other work happening. And of course, we still have condoms, insertive and receptive. But we still need more because people are complex and our lives are complex and we need multiple choices, I think. We need to have more of an array of choices like contraception does. Vaginal ring is technically a microbicide, but uh, there's also work being done for a rectal microbicide that's delivered as a douche. So a lot of gay men, especially who have anal sex, I should be clear, like anal sex is not just a gay thing, it's a human thing. But we know a lot about gay men and anal sex, and gay men like to clean out pants with a douche. It's very common globally. Every part of the world, people do this. So if we can harness this behavior and create a douche that's both safe and provides the cleansing you want and can prevent HIV, imagine that. So there's been a lot of work underway. Dr. Craig Hendricks and his team at Johns Hopkins have been working on this idea for several years now. And it's getting ready to move into a phase two study with the HIV Prevention Trials Network, a really clever, interesting study that's going to be comparing, um, it won't show efficacy, but it's going to show a lot of other things, safety, acceptability, we'll be able to get drug levels, stuff like that. And when I say we, it's not really me, it's the royal we, it's them. And I see myself as part of the picture, but I'm not getting anyone's drug levels directly. The study is going to be comparing 211 for PrEP, so this idea of on-demand PrEP, the 211 dosing formula, and comparing that to on-demand douching, and to see about drug levels, acceptability, adherence, uh, and hopefully, if that looks good, it'll carry forward into a phase three where we can actually test whether this idea works. But we certainly have a lot of data that shows it would be highly acceptable. And it's not just theoretical data. A lot of acceptability data is theoretical, right? Like, what would you think about an implant, but you don't actually have an implant? Well, for a lot of people, they do douche and they like to douche and we don't have to convince them to do that. 
And so when you tell them, hey, how would you like a douche that not only gave you the hygiene you wanted, but also provided you protection against HIV, people are excited about that. People are on board with that. And so I'm super excited about it. I think it's really novel and interesting, and I'm very hopeful for what this next study shows us. It's interesting that you mentioned this because you have been a great advocate of rectal microbicides. Probably you can share with the audience what this initiative you had, like probably five years ago or more than that. Yeah, Irma. So Irma, it sounds like a librarian, like a nice librarian or your aunt Irma. Irma, just like that nice lady down the street. Irma actually, in this context, stands for the International Rectal Microbicide Advocates. And me and a couple of other people, Anna Forbes, um, J.D. Davids, and Marc-Andre LeBlanc, literally four of us launched this project in 2005. And we did it because microbicide research was already underway. <clears throat> and there was a lot of vaginal microbicide research happening. And it was very focused on the vagina. And there were organizations that were focused on advocacy for microbicides that were vaginal specific, but there was almost no discussion at all about rectal microbicides. And the research for rectal microbicides was paltry, very little, and it was often hidden because of the stigma associated with it. And at this time, we were under the Bush administration. So things like anal sex, gay people, trans people, like all of this stuff had to be hidden. So there was some rectal microbicide research happening, but it was hidden. It was like part of other projects. It wasn't easy to find because they didn't want some snoop, some nosy congressman to come in and burn it all down. So we thought well, this is important research. We need vaginal microbicides and we need rectal microbicides. And frankly, a lot of cisgender women who could benefit from vaginal microbicides could also benefit from rectal because a lot of cisgender women have anal sex. So we thought we needed to have some advocacy and some community support. And so I ended up leading the initiative. It was housed at the AIDS Foundation of Chicago, where I was for 17 years. And it became a global network to uh, support the research and development of safe, effective, acceptable, and desirable rectal microbicides for all those who need them, for people who have anal sex. And it was an opportunity to kind of connect communities with researchers, funders, policymakers, making sure there was a discussion happening, um, back and forth, sharing of information. We can't advocate for something if we don't know about it. So I said, as soon as I could pronounce microbicides, I was an advocate. Like it took me a minute to pronounce it, but I'm like, like I couldn't say it. Once I could, I learned about it. I couldn't stop talking about it. And then you tell other people about this option and folks got excited and wanted to help move the research on. And I think we did play a big role. A couple of years after we were founded, the NIH funded a network called the Microbicide Trials Network that lasted up until last year, basically. It just sunsetted recently. We weren't the only ones who influenced that. There was a lot of influence. There was a lot of energy towards it. Um, our former president, Barack Obama, was calling for microbicide trials network, other congressional leaders, lots of advocates. 
the whole idea with that network is focusing on products that were not systemic. So where the drug doesn't go through your whole body. So the benefit of a microbicide, rectal or vaginal, is it goes where the action is and it doesn't go everywhere else. So if you take a pill, you have drug in your whole body. If you put a vaginal ring in, you have drug in your vagina where infection happens. If you use a rectal douche, you have drug in your butt where infection happens and hopefully can stop infection. So there's a need to have things that are not systemic and that are user controlled, that a user can decide when to use or not to use. And I think that was a big part of the microbicide trials networks. And the other networks were working on vaccines and other technologies. It's important to have into consideration what do people need and what do communities want. So what could you say is important to consider when it comes to HIV prevention research and designing interventions that can help people prevent acquiring HIV? I think we have to really focus on things like desire, things like pleasure, and we have to create things that people want. Like we can create the best HIV prevention thing ever. It works 100% of the time. It's amazing. But if people don't like it, it's not amazing because it won't work 100% of the time because they're not going to use it. There has to be this idea that people will stand in line for it. It's something that's so good that they're going to queue up and wait for it, that they want it. Um, not just something they have to grudgingly use. Your sex life lasts a long time, many decades. And you want to have tools and options to keep yourself sexually healthy. Like you want something that works for you and that you like. So I think that's one frame that we forget about sometimes is that sex is really about pleasure and desire. And so we need to have products that kind of fit into that. And we need to listen to communities. So right now, I mean, much of the research agenda is focused on long acting and systemic products. And I'm going to say up front, I am in support of long-acting and systemic products, comma, but not just those products. I also want products that are short-acting, that are not systemic, that are user-controlled. You know, you get that injection, it's long-acting, and it works really well, but you have to go to the clinic for that. But a rectal douche, you buy that rectal douche, and you use it when you're about to have sex. You're not going to the clinic to get douched. So. We need all of those things. We need things that run the gamut from short acting to long acting, user controlled to clinic delivered, systemic to non-systemic. We need to think about those things and find um, options that work and test those options and follow those leads. I think we're doing a disservice to the communities that we uh, are serving globally if we only focus on kind of one aspect. And I understand the desire to like long acting and systemic. It takes a lot of guesswork out. You know, if you have a hard time taking a pill a day, there's something very appealing about getting a shot once every couple months. And those shots eventually will probably have a shot that lasts for a year or a half a year. It's very appealing, but it's not appealing to people who don't like shots. And it may not be appealing to people who realize, oh, if I get that shot, that drug actually stays in my body for a really long time. Um, it's not going to work for a really long time, but it stays there for a really long time. I'm not so sure about that. So we need to 
listen to those concerns and meet people where they're at and listen. So I think that's the key thing is to actually listen to communities and then follow communities' leads, especially when science is there to show it's possible. When some of those things like pills and shots aren't appealing to people, and no matter what we say about it, they're not going to take them. So I hope that we think more about product attributes widely, efficacy being one of them, and again, our constituencies, the groups of folks who are vulnerable to HIV, that we listen, and we listen to what they want, and we do our best to deliver on their interests and desires. Interesting that you mentioned this, and I wonder from your perspective, how do you merge the politics of HIV prevention, the science of HIV prevention, and the demands of the community? How could you say this be very well managed so everybody gets what they want or they need? <laughs> Well, you said politics. So yes, politics come into this. Funding comes into this. Ego comes into this. People's turf comes into this. People's own kind of ideologies. It's messy and complicated like humans are. But I think a strong way to move forward is, is something that has been said for decades about people living with HIV. Nothing for us without us. So when we think about services for people with HIV, they're not designed by other people for me who's living with HIV. I'm part of that discussion. And so when we think about prevention, we're talking to people who have, quote, real skin in the game. They're vulnerable to HIV. They live in places where there's a lot of HIV. They're in communities where there's a lot of HIV. And we listen to them and we take their guidance and we don't just listen to them to check off a box and say, we listened to them and now we're gonna go do our thing. We listen to them and we actually follow their lead. It's not always possible necessarily, but if there's scientific, if we have some proof that these things could potentially work, I think it, we have to do that. So that's one way to move forward. And I think we have to continue to do advocacy. So I recently, uh, joined AVAC as a senior advisor, and I started a project with them called the Choice Agenda. And it's really about an advocacy movement. This is about helping us focus in what are we developing in the pipeline? What products are we moving forward? What drugs, what molecules, what delivery mechanisms? And on the other side, how are we implementing those? There's all kinds of ways to implement these different interventions. And how are we doing that that fits the needs of community? How are we doing all of this with a health equity lens? How are we listening to people? And instead of making people jump through hoops, we create things that have as little friction as possible in terms of getting what they need and using what they need and staying healthy. There's so much friction in our system we have to get rid of. So the choice agenda is a series of ongoing webinars and then a, a discussion list where we can share information about these things and have this dialogue to, to really push forward this notion of choice and who gets to make the choice. Is it the heads of the NIH? Is it Bill Gates and the Clinton Foundation and other big funders? Do they make decisions about the pipeline? Is it communities? It's really a combination, but communities have to be at the very center 
And they can't just be at the center again to sort of fulfill optics, to check a box or to make it look nice. Like we have to have communities at the center and then we have to actually listen. And that's hard. Like that means sometimes setting aside our ego. That means sometimes setting aside silos. That means being creative. Definitely. But for communities to participate, they need to be educated in what these new technologies are and how to understand science in a very easy way. So what are your ideas regarding educating the community to really have an informed decision or an informed voice when it comes to HIV research in general? You're absolutely right. You hit on a key thing. You can't advocate for things if you don't know about them or you don't really understand them. And so <clears throat> we have to be doing presentations, discussions, creating materials, podcasts like this, YouTube videos, presentations at conferences, at events, all kinds of things where we can talk about these things in real ways. I'm a, I've been presenting on new prevention technologies for a long time. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I have no letters before or after my name. So I come to it and I try to break it down and speak about it like, quote, a normal person who's not in the field talks about it. You have to make it accessible. And People get it, but it's just about being real and using real language, using language that's accessible. And I think helping people understand where it fits into their sexual lives. Final question. What is the future of HIV research, not only prevention, from your perspective? A lot going on. Uh, we still don't have an HIV vaccine, but we're learning much more. I think, interestingly, how HIV really informed the COVID vaccine response. And now the things we've learned from developing COVID vaccines with mRNA technology, some of those learnings are coming back full circle. There's a long-acting injectable now that's being studied that could last for six months. So that's a huge leap forward. Right now, we have an injectable that's every two months. And imagine going from six shots a year to two shots a year. That is incredibly appealing. And I think we're going to see interesting things happening with pills that last longer, small implants that can go into your arm and provide long-term protection. And increasingly, we're seeing exciting things happening in the multi-purpose technology space. So recognizing that no human being has only HIV as their only sexual health concern. There's other STIs, there's unwanted pregnancies. So the more we can bring those things together within a modality or within how we implement our different interventions to streamline it for people, make it easy, reduce friction. I think I'm seeing a lot more in that space and I'm really excited about it. So we're in really exciting times. We have stuff that works really, really well. So the final thing I'll say, because we've had some successes here on the prevention side, It makes the bar for creating other new products even more challenging. But I'm going to be optimistic and say I'm confident that we're able to do that as we get these more and more effective things, that there's still going to be space and energy to create an array of things that meet people at different points in their life and support them in ways that they need. So I'm pretty optimistic. I think this is an exciting time. 
like I said in the beginning of this, a few years ago, 10 years ago, we would have never seen ourselves here 15 years ago with this new array of things and all these things on the horizon. And that's really because there's been a lot of people who have been working at this hard and persistent and um, not losing the thread. It can get aggravating. It's a long journey. The vaccine journey has been multiple decades, but the vaccine folks are still right. They're still enthused. They're still doing the work. They're learning and um there's they're being persistent so i think that's the lesson for all of us is even when the chips look like they're down we have to continue to persist it's not going to happen with us saying oh throwing our hands up and giving up it's going to happen if we keep going back coming back and figuring this stuff out oh jim uh it's always a pleasure thank you so much for participating in this episode of age equals age and we hope to have you again sometime in the future, probably to announce a new discovering HIV prevention. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Pedro. And to our audience, please stay tuned for another episode of The Age is for Human. Do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of The Age is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV.